from the magnificent Midwest. This is the Suzanne Benker Show, where men and women are equal in value, but wildly different by nature. Join us here every week when we challenge the culture's hugely flawed narratives regarding men, women, sex, and love. From coast to coast and from around the world, thank you for joining us. This program is brought to you in part by Let's Get Real, where forensic accountant Tiffany Couch uses her financial skills to shine the light on the real issues we all face every day. If you'd like to make decisions based on facts rather than on feel-good rhetoric and on cultural pressures, go to letsgetreallife.com, a place where you can find tools to improve your communication skills and to increase your connection to humanity. That's letsgetreallife.com. Today on the show, we're going to talk with sociologist W. Bradford Wilcox on the myth of the soulmate. But before we do, a couple of quick announcements. As some of you know, I've moved the Suzanne Banker Show from the Hair Saloon corporate offices to my home, and I'm in great need of patron support. Podcasts are a great way to push back against the lies the culture tells, but I need your help. Just go to the SuzanneBankerShow.com and scroll down until you see the Become a Patron button, where you'll find four very economical levels as well as free gifts for signing up. And if you have a business you want to promote, there's even an option for that. And a quick shout out today to Emily and Paul. Thank you both so much for becoming a supporter of the Suzanne Banker Show. Also, don't forget to check out my brand new shop page at SuzanneBanker.com where you'll find my new ebook, How to Be a Wife, Seven Secret Steps to a Peaceful and Passionate Relationship with Your Man, as well as the new Suzanne Banker Show mugs. Mugs. Everybody needs a mug. You don't want to listen to the show without drinking coffee and you need a mug to drink it out of. So head on over to the shop page and get yourself a Suzanne Banker show mug. Finally, if you or if someone you know needs a marriage mentor and you think we'd be a good fit, just go to my website, SuzanneBanker.com and click on coaching at the top. There's even a four session package designed to help newly married couples save their marriage before it starts by highlighting the four main potential stressors of every marriage. If you can resolve those now so they don't become a problem later, you're well on your way to a successful marriage. How do young people today view marriage? Of those surveyed in one National Marriage Project poll, 88% of singles agreed that there was a special person or a soulmate waiting for them somewhere out there. This same poll found that for 80% of the women polled, a husband who could articulate his deepest feelings was a better catch than one who earned a good living. This soulmate model of marriage suggests there's one unique person on the planet who connects with us by meeting our deepest longings, desires, and needs. It prioritizes skills such as the expression of feelings and the ability to spark romantic or sexual chemistry. A soulmate marriage is supposed to make you feel, in a word, happy. There's just one problem. It's a myth. The soulmate view of marriage is not conducive to a permanent commitment because it's deeply indebted to a romanticized way of thinking about love. No one person is capable of giving us great pleasure and great happiness all or even most of the time. That is why men and women who embrace the soulmate model are often left deeply disappointed by the real-world realities of love and marriage. Here with me today to discuss the soulmate myth is Bradford Wilcox, a sociologist who serves as director of the National Marriage Project. He's also a professor of sociology at the University of Virginia, a senior fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. His research, which has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, NPR, and the Today Show, focuses on ways in which marriage, gender, and culture influence the quality and stability of family life in the U.S. and around the globe. His website is wbradfordwilcox.com. Welcome to the show, Brad. It's great to be here, Suzanne. So great to talk with you. I'm really excited to talk about this subject. I've been wanting to do this for some time, and I actually... 
um, touched upon this topic with my husband. We're now doing a new once a month Bill and Suzanne hour on this podcast. And we talked on the last segment about just touched upon this whole concept of the soulmate and the myth of the soulmate. And I said at that, at that time that I'm going to be having someone on to talk about that at length. So here we are really excited. Okay. So let's dig in. You, um, this came to my attention earlier this year when you, um, wrote an article and then I believe you did a speech on this, um, where you talked about, well, the title was for as long as our love shall last the soulmate myth. And, I believe you've parlayed that into a book, which we can talk about later. But what I loved about it in particular was that you opened that article and talk, and I think new book, all of the above, with um, Elizabeth Gilbert, the author of Eat, Pray, Love, the wildly successful book that just launched pretty much a movement. It was definitely not just a book, um, which was really all about Elizabeth Gilbert's approach to love and marriage, essentially. And it lit on fire. And I'm going to let you sort of explain why you use that, because it's just a perfect way to segue into this very big subject. Yeah, thanks, Suzanne. You know, right from the start of her runaway bestseller, Eat, Pray, Love, uh, Liz Gilbert makes it clear that an older model of love and marriage is not for her. You know, she's beginning this book by talking about how she's sobbing, um, on her bathroom floor at 3 a.m. in her home in the New York suburbs. And it's at this moment that she gets a revelation. Uh, she doesn't want the big house in the burbs. She doesn't want the visits to big box stores with her husband. And she doesn't want the baby. So because of all these things, uh, she leaves her marriage, um, divorces her first husband, and heads out on a marriage. So heads out on a journey um, to, to Italy, where it's about you know eating, to India, where it's about praying, and to Indonesia, where it's about love. Um, and so again, in Indonesia, she finds a new man um, who she thinks kind of meets um, meets the bar. And his name is Jose Nunez. And he's, by her account, um, patient, wise, a great cook, well-proportioned, um, a good lover, and of course, exotic to boot. He's from Brazil, and of course, she's from America. Um, so they have this, you know, this powerful romance in Indonesia, and towards the end of the book, she says that they that they crossed over, um, and that is they, they went on to, to marriage. And she later writes that marriage to Jose was, quote, a delight, a comfort, a compass, a refuge. Um, and so, you know, all seems great, right? But 10 years into her marriage, um, something happens, um, and or perhaps someone happened, because she leaves, Liz leaves Jose for a new soulmate. And of course, that's fine in her book, because in her words, I don't think marriage is supposed to be an endurance contest. Uh, and obviously, that, that's her view. But I think what's happening here is that Liz Gilbert is under the impression that, that sort of love, that marriage is about kind of that intense feeling of being in love, you know, having that connection yep. of being fulfilled, being happy, kind of basically most of the time, all the time, who knows. Um, and when that when those butterflies leave, um, she starts to, I think, look around for, for a new um a new prospect, a new partner, I think, is sort of what's happening here. Um, and so her approach, while extreme, I think, is certainly one that resonates with a lot of people um, out there, Jay, especially young adults who haven't actually been married. Um, and we can see, like, in the popular culture, for instance, you know, there, there are literally thousands of songs, hundreds of movies 
that kind of present this idea that that love and that marriage are about kind of this intense emotional connection, this intense romantic connection um, that's supposed to make you feel good, make you happy, uh, make you fulfilled, you know, most or all of the time. So this is kind of the soulmate myth that's out there um, in large part in, in much of the pop culture um, and is articulated by some people like Liz Gilbert um, in more educated precincts as well. And what's so scary about it is that, I mean, those of us who think beyond, um, you know, emotion, I guess you want to say, um, know that it's so not sustainable. And as a result, you're going to fall flat on your face if that is your view of love and marriage. Um, so that gets into a big conversation about what else is necessary for marriage to last outside of that initial loving feeling that for all of us will dissipate over time or grow hopefully into something deeper, but that initial high. And I know people, you know, who've actually gotten divorced and remarried chasing that to chase that high. And of course it's very sad because there's, I wrote in one of my books that even if you marry Brad Pitt, you're going to find <laughs> eventually um, that that wears off. And I don't think people really believe me when I say that, you know, but it it really is true because you have to get beyond that initial that initial experience that we all have when we fall in love. So the scary part of that ethic is that, as you write, um, what happens? It says you wrote here the new ethic is love for as long as your love shall last, with love being understood that which make that that which makes you feel like you're growing fulfilled or happy in your marriage and what do you do then when you're stuck and and you realize wow that's that's not sustainable that's that's, that's not going to work this week <laughs> or next week exactly. or next month right. where's right. that yeah so what do you do at that point if you don't have something else to hold on to you're you're kind of screwed so another you were talking about how this was in the culture and it is big time another story that you brought up which I wrote about earlier this year as well, is marriage story. We got the same kind of theme from that story that we do in Eat, Pray, Love. And it, of course, did very well and was discussed in terms of being, you know, this profound um, story where the woman ends up realizing that she's sacrificed herself and she's lost herself. And so the only solution is to get divorced, of course, so you can go out and find yourself which is the same theme as the, the Eat, Pray, Love, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I think the marriage story is a great example of the way in which, um, you know, we see marriage as primarily about, um, or it's a vehicle that we're supposed to drive to make ourselves happy uh, and or to find sort of, you know, growth and new meaning. This is sort of the marriage story idea is that, you know, the lead character played by Scarlett Johansson is not, feeling like her marriage is kind of allowing her to pursue her own self self's projects. And, you know, there's, there's no attention here, of course, given to the welfare of, mm. of her son, you mm -hmm. know, um, or her husband for that matter, but really in, um, but I think when we step back though, from these, uh, for, you know, from the marriage story or even from the popularity of eat, pray, love, what's important here to realize in part is that these narratives, these stories, thankfully, are much less um, salient, much less um, kind of prevalent in the real world today than I think they were in the 70s, you know, at the height of the divorce revolution. Um, I was reading a, a book by David Frum, actually, a while back, and he talks about how there's this, you know, these these people, um, he, there's a New York 
publishing executive, for instance, who had this to say after he abandoned his wife for a new life in Santa Fe, New Mexico in the early 70s. He said, quote, my marriage represents a side of me, the socially acceptable part. And I live in conflict between that side, the face that pleases other people. And what I'm learning is another part of me, a part I like better. So what you have here is this guy who's kind of coming on to this view that Again, it's all about kind of how he feels, how exciting he feels, sort of what his uh, future holds for himself, understood in a very kind of narrow kind of sort of therapeutic way and with no consideration for, um, you know, for his wife, for his children. Um, and really, I think also probably no consideration for the fact that there are new chapters uh, awaiting him. You know, if he actually stayed with his wife and kids, mm -hmm. um, there are there are new chapters both in his marriage, and there are new chapters as a father, um, and as a grandfather. And by just leaving that marriage, he has closed, um, you know, the that sort of closed the book on all of those possibilities in ways that probably were I to guess, you know, um, and he's probably, you know. Um, you know, he's probably in his 70s or 80s now, if he's still alive, there's probably a lot of regret that he took that that more me-focused path back then rather than that family-focused path. Back and then. not only me, but the immediate, right? The immediate sure, versus short -term, the long right. haul, you know, just delayed gratification. You know, this is something that our mothers and our grandmothers understood instinctively. Of course, they lived a very different life and they matured faster and they saw war and depression and all the above. So they thought much farther out than people do today. You know, the idea that you're going to suffer for a little bit throughout your marriage, well, not not just once, maybe several times and for long periods of time and that you come out on the other end is really foreign, I think, to the modern generation. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think um, particularly foreign to the folks who are obviously not getting married today. But I think, um, I, I think there is a lack of recognition on the part of many people who aren't married yet and many of the people who hold themselves out as marriage experts or family experts today or write about marriage and family life, there's kind of an, an inability to sort of see that marriage is about not just this intense emotional connection. And I don't doubt the importance of that, but it's also about these other classic goods. And, you know, these are goods like, obviously, first and foremost, the welfare of your children, if you have them. But they're also goods like, you know, financial stability. Um, goods like both giving and receiving support from, you know, from your kin. Um, and marriage is about, you know, many things. It's not just about that intense emotional connection. And if you lose sight of these other goods that I just mentioned, um, your capacity to forge a good relationship with your kids, your capacity to be financially stable when you hit retirement, um, your capacity to be enmeshed in a kinship network that's going to be there for you in your darkest moments isn't going to be there. Amen. Um, and specific to what you just said about the issue of money and the, and how that's just sort of, and I can personally attest to this as a marriage coach, just I cannot tell you the number of women who completely dismiss the fact that the men they chose, the men they chose to marry were not financially sound right? Or they were not on their way, or they were just sort of still looking for themselves or what have you. And they didn't think that that was something to look for, because they haven't been taught to. Um, and I earlier, um, in the introduction, I mentioned a survey from the National Marriage Project poll, where 88% of singles agree that there was a special, pers a special person out there waiting for them. And that that same poll found that 80% of the women who were polled 
were more concerned with a husband who could articulate his deepest feelings and that that was a better catch than one who earned a good living. That's right. pretty shocking. I thought the percentages are real. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised and I'm not because the number is so high and it bears out what I'm seeing in my coaching for sure. Right. Although I think we have to be careful here um, because I think for many of us, and this is certainly true for me personally, you kind of have a more so many view of marriage before the wedding day. And I think you have a more what I call family first or what we used to call an institutional model of marriage after the wedding day, especially once kids come along. So, you know, I think uh, particularly today, as marriages become more stable and also more the precincts of the, you know, the more privileged Americans, unfortunately, I actually think that for those who are married, especially for those who've been married a couple of years with kids, there is a growing either explicit or implicit appreciation of how much marriage is linked to financial stability. So once you have that house together, you know, once you have that IRA, you know, with stocks um, and other holdings, you know, um, growing, I think this more classic concern with money that we see you know, articulated in, in, in the work of Jane Austen, for instance, um, reappears. And so I think what we're seeing play out among many, you know, affluent Americans who are married today, as opposed to what we're seeing in the 70s, is that they're sticking it out in part because they know at some level that their financial future um, is linked to their ability to make the marriage work. Um. Yeah, although my only thought is that as you're talking is, um, you know, the time to sort of figure that out isn't necessarily way in. <laughs> you know, in other words, back in the day, there was a reason why people said, make sure that this person is sound financially, otherwise it's not going to work. And so because because people aren't getting that message early on, they're sort of finding themselves having to face it after the fact. Does that make sense? So they're sort of picking up the pieces and figuring out how to maneuver financially after they're already married when they've made a lot of decisions along the way that have not been conducive sure. to having a strong marriage. And that's that's the part that concerns me. Um, but I do think it's interesting that millennials now, and you can speak to this, you know, they are very focused on money, very almost, I mean, a lot now before they get married to the to the degree where the marriage is way off in the future and they're just focused on getting out of debt, which is a whole nother conversation. Um, right. And think that, think that they can't get married until they're financially sound, which, hello, it's never been that way, for one thing. You know, you grow together and you're building something is always how it's been. And then secondly, they're bringing all this debt into their lives. And there's very few that are going to get out of that debt prior in time to get married. Right, right. Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think there certainly is an, and there, there are two different points you're kind of making. One is that I think some young adults today are not sufficiently cognizant of the importance of um, finding, you know, a spouse who is uh, responsible, you know, employable and and, and financially prudent. Um, and then there are others who, um, you know, who are so uh, fixated on having a kind of a middle-class lifestyle that they don't get married until their, their late twenties or their thirties. Um, and, or, or they're not open to finding a spouse, <clears throat> you know, age 23 or whatever, 25, when there's a perfectly uh, great option right in front of them. And actually, and I'd love to have you come back. I know you wrote this, I, I found a great article you wrote about the benefits of marrying in your mid to late twenties, which I totally agree with. And they're awesome. Um, 
you know, reasons. And I, that's really another subject. And I'd love to have you come back to, to discuss that. So I don't want to get too, too off, too off onto money right now or, or when to marry, but okay. So back to the soulmate, um, you wrote that when many Americans abandoned, abandoned, excuse me, an ethic of merit of marital permanence and adopted the soulmate model, which was around the 1970s, as you pointed out, the divorce rate, of course, more than doubled. So can you talk about, um, I can, I, you know, I consider that a self-fulfilling prophecy, but talk about the connection between, between the attitude and the, and the end result, really. Yeah, so I think the soulmate myth, you know, again, it's this idea that marriage is primarily about an intense emotional connection that's supposed to make us happy, fulfilled, um, and, and empowered. Um, and, of course, this approach, this idea is not um, conducive to marital stability. And we saw a huge increase in divorce in the 1970s as this kind of more soulmate model um, rose to the fore. And what's interesting here is that we still see in the in the survey that I just did with my colleagues um, at the Institute for Family Studies, we did a survey in California of a couple of thousand people, and we found uh, today um, that people who have the idea that marriage is about an intense emotional romantic connection um, are more likely to have serious doubts that their marriage will last compared to those married folks in California who think that marriage is about romance, but also about kids, money, and raising a family together. So again, mm -hmm. this isn't probably, this isn't rocket science to really anyone on, on the, <laughs> in no. the public conversation, but people who embrace this model are more likely to get um, divorced. But I think the more, or to be worrying about divorce, but I think the more, in some ways, surprising finding in the research that I've been doing with my colleagues, including Wendy Wang at the Institute for Family Studies, is that people who embrace the soulmate marriage model or, or embrace the myth are not only more likely to get divorced, and that's no surprise, but they're less likely to be happily married um, in our, our, you know, our data from the California Family Survey. So again, the folks who sort of have this um, more family-first model of marriage that recognizes marriage about communion, about kids, about commitment, about cash, and about being part of a community um, that supports you and your family. Um, people who embrace this family-first model are not only more stably married, again, no surprise there, but they're also happier on average in their marriages compared to Americans who embrace the soulmate myth. Yeah, and I link this too, and you wrote about this as well, the obvious answer to that is because the expectations are so different, right? When you go into something with a more realistic expectation rather than an inflated one, chances are you're going to come out much on top if you have the former view of it. Um, so high expectations are just a gigantic problem in modern marriage. I mean, I I see it, and 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 not only do I see it, I hear it from people who, especially the older generation, when I'm talking to them about how marriage has changed and the first thing out of their mouth is, oh my God, the expectations these young people have. It's really unbelievable. It's almost like because marriage is not needed in the traditional sense, especially for women, than it once was, we had to create some other idea for what to do with it, you know, because we, we know that children need parents. So at least we've got, I think, people, I think that's pretty much why people, I mean, they've always gotten married for the sake of children. But I think that even today, even millennials, that is, you know, they'll, they'll postpone it as long as they can. But once the kids come along, they concede that, you know, marriage is good. 
And that's almost their only reason, I think, sometimes. Yeah, I think that's correct. Um, and we're kind of, we have been sort of operating in this sort of world where I think many pop cultural messages and, and even, you know, many of our elites who write and talk about marriage have this idea that it's a kind of a, it's a mountaintop experience. And there's a guy named Eli Finkel, very smart uh, family psychologist who sort of argues that we've been able to kind of go up the Mount Maslow Um and what he means by that is there's obviously a, fa- a famous psychologist named Abram Maslow. And his Maslow's idea was that kind of in this contemporary world, we can focus more on things like our self-expression, our self-fulfillment, um, you know, this sort of intense emotional stuff on, on personal growth. Um, this was sort of the idea that Maslow had. And Finkel thinks that contemporary marriages can kind of can do this. They can focus again on, on the emotions, the self, personal growth. And what the assumption there is that money, again, is not that important. Maybe kids are not that important. Um, and social support and solidarity are not important. And this is all predicated in the idea, right, that the market and the state are going to be there for you when yeah. the going gets tough. Right. That you can you can buy all your meals, you know, um, at Wegmans or you know Food Lion um, or out at a restaurant, obviously, and that you know the state can provide support in terms of childcare, you know, education, um, medical care um, for you, and you don't have to rely on your spouse and your kid. Okay, so you can focus just on this sort of intense emotional approach to marriage. Now, I think that there certainly has been some merit to that idea. Um, but I would argue, particularly post-COVID, um, that we're learning that we can't rely on the state as much as many, I think, thought, uh, that we can't rely upon our employer or the marketplace as we may have thought. And so at the end of the day, who's there for you? Who's in your corner? Well, you know, for most of us, it's our family. And so I actually think that kind of coming out of this, for those who are marrying, you know, and having kids, we're going to have a more family-first model, and it's a more stable uh, and a more realistic model of marriage. When you got married, things were perfect. You were both in love, and life was good. Then, somewhere along the line, everything changed. She changed, or maybe he did. Either which way, now your relationship feels, well, hard. I coach husbands and wives who feel lonely, disrespected, or misunderstood in their relationship. So many women today are desperate for their husbands to step up to the plate, to make a decision and to stick to it, to lead rather than to follow. Ladies, you have the power to make it happen. Men respond best to women who are grounded in their feminine core. As for husbands, so many of them want their wives to stop nagging and to just trust them, to smile more and to complain less, to look at them the way they did when they were first dating. Men, you have the power to make it happen. Women respond best to men who are grounded in their masculine core. The secret to lasting love rests in the masculine-feminine dance. Once you master it, your relationship will no longer be difficult. You'll be moving with the biological tide rather than against it. And that makes marriage smooth sailing. If you're struggling in your relationship, if you feel frustrated or alone, I can help. Just go to SuzanneVenker.com, that's S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-V-E-N-K-E-R.com, and click on the coaching button at the top. Don't wait another minute to acquire the mindset you need to find love and to sustain it. It's so much easier than you think. That's SuzanneVenker.com. Speaking of, so I had Eli Finkel written down here. You just basically described it, which was great. Um, The part and parcel of this whole concept is the idea of feelings 
um, not only self-actualization, which you've mentioned, but also how one feels throughout a relationship, right? That if it's good, that means you're in a good relationship. And if you feel bad or if you wonder whether or not you should have married the person, right? Or if you ever think about divorce or if you ever um, have problems that seem like they're insurmountable, all of a sudden the walls come down. And it's like, oh my gosh, I married the wrong person rather than understanding, no, this is life. And it, no matter who you marry, this stuff is going to be thrown your way. The challenge is to get out of it, not to question whether or not you married the right person. Right. So the idea, obviously, is that love is not a feeling, it's a decision. And I think the problem with uh, people like Elizabeth Gilbert is they think that love is a feeling. Um, it's about feeling in love. Um, that's what love is. Whereas a more classical view of, of, of love, particularly as it relates to marriage um, and, and friendship, really, is that love is a decision, that you are you've made a decision to be with someone um, and to be there for them through thick and thin, you know, in sickness and in health. Um, and, um, uh, you know, so um, and, until death do you part. And so that's that's a whole different way of thinking about marriage. And again, that doesn't guarantee you happiness um, at any one moment in time in your marriage or in your life more generally. But again, this is the sort of paradox that people like Liz Gilbert can't see. And that is, is that when you make your life's work to love someone through thick and thin, when you put others first, uh, or when you try to do that uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, what we tend to see um, in the psychological and sociological research is that you're happier, um, that living a generous life in your marriage as in other domains actually makes us happier. And that's what the Liz Gilbert approach can never, ever see. But anyways, but the point is, is that it's clearly the case that her approach to relationships is not, um, not amenable to a stable marriage. Good. Good way to end it. <laughs> I mean, and that conversation with her, that is. Um, you also point out that the core ambition of the devotees of the soulmate model, their goal isn't to necessarily be stably married, like it might be for you and me, but to be not, but to be happily married. Not that we're against being happily married. I want sure. to throw that in there. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but, yeah. But there is a distinction. And what is that distinction, Brad? Well, you know, and here it's interesting. Um, if, if you're kind of following the marriage conversation in America, um, you know, one of the most, I think, um, clever voices in that conversation is a historian named Stephanie Kuntz, a feminist historian named Stephanie Kuntz. Mm -hmm. And al although she doesn't explicitly embrace all of the sort of soulmate um, ideas, I mean, she's too smart really to do that. Um, she, her, her approach to thinking out loud and talking out loud about marriage is certainly um, kind of um, make space for, for a more soulmate approach to marriage. She says this in her book, uh, Marriage History, quote, in this new model, that is a marriage, people expect marriage to satisfy more of their psychological and social needs than ever before. They want marriage to meet most of their needs for intimacy and affection and all their needs for sex. Never before in history had societies thought that such a set of high expectations about marriage was either realistic or desirable. Now, from her perspective, you know, in 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 truth, she thinks that this shift towards these elevated expectations about marriage in the emotional and the sexual psychological arenas are basically a good thing. And again, there's no recognition um, that the fragility that they often lead to um, can be a real downside for for couples, for spouses, and and for their kids. 
Um, so you write that the intense passion and happiness we experience in romantic love fades with time for virtually everyone, which we mentioned before. Um, and, and I like this part. Eventually, you discover the absolutely adorable spouse you married has a temper or a weakness for credit card clothing purchases or different plans for the religious upbringing of your children than you do. And that's such a it's sort of like, bam, like reality goes right into the whole fantasy. And I, and that's I love that because that's what we're all about here at the show is dealing with reality. Right. And the way life really is, not the way it's portrayed in the culture and the media. Right. And I think one of the things, too, that struck me, I mean, as I said, Eli Finkless is this very interesting book um, called The All or Nothing Marriage. And he does, I think, st- still kind of succumb to this idea that marriage is a vehicle for, you know, fulfillment, happiness and self-exploration. Now, he's, he's got, again, a much more subtle understanding of how these things play out than you would see in sort of a, a pop cultural treatment of, of marriage. But there isn't, I think, an adequate recognition, and I think his title here is, is, is a tell, that there is something out there for most Americans who are married that's not the all-or-nothing marriage, that's sort of the, the in-between marriage, the, the yeah. good-enough marriage. Yeah. And again, not for every part of our married life, but for much of our married life. And I think the smartest people recognize this today and are doing it. So I have, you know, I'm, I'm quoting a woman I call Lisa Lee, a Korean-American. Um, who says that romance is not her first priority right now. She's got kids who are school-aged, and she says this, it may sound really cold to say that it's an economic partnership, but it is in some ways. And the project of raising our children is at the moment the overwhelming priority for us until they're out of the house and financially independent, okay, unquote. And uh, Lee is not a, she's not a conservative, she's actually a, a progressive, but she is, I think, very hard-nosed here in underlining this reality that marriage is not just about her feelings with her husband. It's about you know, raising a family together and recognizing that if she and her husband do a good job staying together, sticking together, and focusing on their kids at this point in time, their kids will benefit. And of course, we all know that longer term, she and her husband will benefit too from having kids who are uh, well-functioning adults, probably themselves forging good families, giving them grandkids, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, I agree wholeheartedly. And being in this very interesting stage of marriage myself, where um, we are almost empty nesters as of next year. And I think the whole concept, again, this goes back to not for the here and the now, but for forever. If you think long-term, you realize that actually you can have that, you know, a marriage has seasons and we're going to enter a season next year where it's just the two of us again. And it's already starting to be felt because uh, our son is very busy. He's at school or he's at work. And so the house and our daughter's in college. So the house is empty for the first time in 20 years. And it's already starting to feel so, so different in a great way um, that we still feel that we have the next 20 years to to have that quote-unquote romantic aspect sort of brought back into the fold. And so, again, not so that it doesn't have to be thought of as like you have this marriage or this kind of marriage, but that it, it has seasons. And at the beginning before kids, it's one way, and then you have kids and it's another, and then they leave and you have yourselves again, and then after that you have get grandkids, right? It's that whole package that is just not sold, in my opinion, often enough. It's just too much of a, you know, postpone it forever. It, then when you once you settle down, your life's over, and then it's all about the kids, and then then you die. <laughs> it's like 
there's there's got to be a different framework here, a different narrative to discuss the whole of marriage, right? Not just um, the here and the now. Yeah, no, and I think the sort of, again, the short-term versus long-term perspective is uh, often sorely lacking in, in the thinking of young adults today and, of course, in the pop culture. Um, and, you know, so, yeah, 100% agreed. And, and I think it's also the case, too, that people who have that long-term perspective um, on family life and on marriage um, end up being in a much better place uh, financially, emotionally, socially, and family-wise, you know, when they hit their... Uh, their 50s, 60s, and 70s than their peers who haven't, you know, had that long-term mindset. Absolutely. Um, so real quickly, let's, you wrote, I want to talk a little bit about happiness because you wrote something interesting. You said happiness is less likely, this goes back to, um, sorry to bring up Liz Gilbert again, but, um, you know, she had she had um, made a statement uh, that, it, that happiness is the consequence of personal effort you strive for it, you fight for it, you insist upon it, and you sometimes you have to travel around the world looking for it. And once you've achieved a state of happiness, you must never become lax about maintaining it. You must make a mighty effort to keep swimming upward into that happiness forever to stay afloat on top of it. But you write, of course, that happiness is far less likely to be found when it is pursued directly, which goes a little bit back to what you were saying, I think, about what happens when you're giving into to your family and how that you get exactly yeah go ahead right so i think and i, and I i'm not a philosopher i'm a sociologist but my philosopher friends you know tell me there's a kind of paradox of happiness um uh argument out there and again that corresponds to this idea that um when you don't seek happiness when you in fact seek other goods in life you're more likely to find it so if you think about you know a football player or a marathoner or an artist, um, or you know, a writer, um, or a teacher, um, if they really cultivate the virtues that are um, kind of attendant to these different vocations or avocations, and pursue them, you know, intensely and well, and become good at teaching, become good at painting, become good at running, etc. There's a kind of a happiness or a contentment that follows from the pursuit of those goods. And what I'm suggesting is that people who pursue the goods of being a good husband, being a good wife, being a good father, being a good mother, um, you know, we all know that there are exceptions. But generally speaking, if, if you try to be a good husband, try to be a good wife, try to be a good father, try to be a good mother, you will see the fruits of that effort um, in a good marriage, in a good parent-child relationship in a good family life. So that's sort of one point that I'm making, you know, here. The second point I'm making is that, again, what I don't think Liz appreciates, what Gilbert appreciates, is that it's by dying to self, by being more generous, that we see in many domains of life that we're actually gen, not, again, not all the time, but we're often more likely to be happy. Um, and that's certainly true in the research that I've done with uh, Jeff Dew on marriage. That is marital generosity. Um, for instance, to be very concrete here, people who try to be generous towards their spouse, um, that generosity is actually a better predictor of their marital happiness than being on the receiving end of generosity from your spouse. This is true for both wives and for husbands. So again, um, you know, both sort of seeing marriage as a place to pursue certain kinds of goods um, and trying to be generous towards your spouse and your kids is um, is linked on average, you know, to 
uh, more happy marriages. And this is what a lot of the apostles of the soulmate model don't see. Yeah. It's, it's, it's sometimes, I mean, I hate to make, to simplify it, but so much of this is really just about maturity, you know, just sort of growing up and out of yourself. And when you don't come out of focusing on yourself, you really never grow up. You really never get it. I mean, honestly, just to make it succinct, um, you just don't. This is why marriage is such a better um, road, generally speaking, for our own personal growth. Because until you are forced to face someone else day in, day out, you're really not looking at yourself and you're not growing. I mean, it requires another person there day in and day out to be able to grow. The idea that you can go off and grow by yourself, I mean, I just... I just reject it. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work that sure. way. Right. Exactly. You know, that's exactly true. And I think, you know, um, another thing that Aristotle said was we're social animals basically. And, uh, I mean, of course there are exceptions, but most of us really are most likely to thrive when we are in relationship to others and we're trying to, <laughs> trying to be a good spouse, good friend, good parent. Okay. So to conclude then we could, is it fair to say that in lieu of the soulmate model, which you would argue, and with which I agree, does not work. The alternative is the family first model, which you've explained, but you can explain a little more if you like. Yeah. So the idea here is that, you know, I think in the 70s, there was kind of a me first approach to married life that really took hold among many Americans. And what I'm suggesting is that for some Americans, particularly for more educated, for more uh, religious Americans, also for many Asian Americans, um, there's a kind of a family first model. It's been sort of, you know, emerging. And this model is one that, yeah, stresses the importance of communion between the spouses. And there's a, you know, romantic piece to that, but also stresses beyond communion. I'm talking about five C's here. Ch- children, you know, is a very important concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the second C. Uh, that stresses commitment, understood both in terms of marital permanence and fidelity. That's that's the third C, commitment. The fourth C is cash, kind of recognizing the importance of establishing a firm, stable financial foundation for, you know, for your marriage and for your family um, and attending to that in, in your marriage. Um, and the fifth C is community, um, situating yourself either in a religious community or in some other kind of network of, of friendships and family members um, that, you know, basically gives honor and support to to your marriage and to your kids and to um to your family more generally. And so people who kind of embrace all or most of those C's um, are of course more stably married, um, but you know, I think this is the kicker, they're more happily married on average. Um, and this family first model flies in the teeth of many of the arguments that have been articulated by people like Stephanie Kuntz um, and have been sort of embodied in, um, you know, countless movies and songs, as well as books by people like Liz Gilbert. Um, but again, people who kind of manage to put their families first um, in today's culture and do it in community um, tend to be much more happily married. And that's, I think, that that's, that's the rub, given that so much of the culture is running against doing that, um, you know, even today. Well, that's a great place to end it. Can you say those five, just the words again of the five C's? The five C's are communion, children, commitment, cash, and community. These Love are the it. five C's of, of, a, of a family first marriage from my, my perspective. 
So is this uh, is that going to be in your new book? I thought we could um, tell people yeah, a little bit so about writing, what you're working yeah, on. I'm writing a new book called uh, We Before Me, and it's sort of on the 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 ways in which marriage matters now more than ever, um, particularly I think in a post-COVID world, um, and also the ways in which those who most embrace marriage um, are the most likely to reap the benefits of married life. Love it. Love it. Well, I look forward to when is that coming out? Do you know? I know sometime, how that goes. Sometime in 2021. Okay, <laughs> so, good. Awesome. Not sure exactly. Yep. Great. Well, tell people, Brad, where they can find out more about your work. I know you have a website, but I also thought that, um, well, here, let me tell people for you. This is even better. I found on the National Marriage Project um, where it's where, the, where it talks about you, they have a lot of articles listed right there is that a good page do you think We're yeah familystudies.org is is probably the best place um and then also on twitter wilcox nmp is also a good place to find me awesome. um yeah great awesome thanks for joining okay. us thanks really for appreciate it on, on talk today. to you soon i hope appreciate thanks bye-bye thank you and now for the email of the day. Today's email is from Cecilia. She writes, Dear Suzanne, I'm a 23-year-old woman from Sweden who recently came across your podcast. However, I have a concern that I don't find mentioned in your podcast. If I do become a young mother and have many kids and cut down my workload for years as a consequence and hence cripple my career, at least in the early stages, what happens if my future husband leaves me? What do I do if by age 50, my future husband falls in love with his assistant and leaves me? Or if I would want to leave the marriage for for substantial reasons. It seems to me like I would then be in a great deal of trouble, both emotionally and financially. I would love to hear your thoughts on this issue. Okay, so I have occasionally, very occasionally, not too often, but heard from women who seem to be under the impression that I would in any way suggest that a woman not get an education, get a skill set, or pursue any... um, job slash professional endeavors that that she wants, um, in addition to getting married and having children. I have never said such a thing or written it anywhere in 20 years. That is not what I'm about. Um, prioritizing marriage and putting family at the center does not is not an either or scenario. You don't you don't either not get educated or have any skills and then get married and pop out a bunch of babies or have one or two children and devote your life to your career. You know, there's just this vast middle ground. So let it be clear if it, if it hasn't been until now that, um, that I do not believe that a woman, um, should not have a skill set or an education, uh, just because she's going to temporarily presumably be out of the workforce. Now the idea that you're, so that's, that's that piece of it. The idea about your, husband, you know, falling in love with another person, leaving you. That was actually one of the greatest fear tactics that feminists used in the 70s to get women to stop being wives and mothers and to become, you know, workhorses. Um, Of course that can happen. It can happen on both sides. But you don't assume that that's going to be the result and and then proceed accordingly and change your life plans over it that makes no sense because it'll end up becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy, number one. And number two, if you focus on the marriage rather than assume that the marriage just sort of does its own thing while you're you know, raising kids or working or what have you, the chances of his or her doing that or leaving you or just 
you know, falling and in, falling into someone else's arms are very minimal, very minimal. I mean, unless you married somebody of low character who has no morals or values or what have you, it's just, it's safe to assume that if you're doing everything right and well, that that's not going to happen. So again, scare tactic that is, um, yeah, a reality that can happen to people. And so for that reason, you absolutely do want to get an education and a skill set so that you can take care of yourself should that arise. But it won't arise for most people if you're doing the work of putting the marriage first and making it healthy and stable. So hopefully that helps and clarifies any thought that anyone out there might have that I don't think a woman should get an education, which is just silly. Also, not to mention the fact that my whole life is a model of the in-between, that it isn't either or. Um, it's a matter of priorities. And um, and so why would I say otherwise when my life has been about that middle ground? So hopefully that answers your question, Cecilia. Thanks for writing. And that ends this hour of the Suzanne Banker Show. Don't forget to tune in next week when my husband joins me again for the Bill and Suzanne Hour. Also, continue the conversation on Facebook. Just type in the Suzanne Banker Show in the Facebook search bar and you will find it. Also, please recommend this podcast to one friend you think would enjoy it. And don't forget to leave us a review on whatever platform you're now using. Finally, if you have a question or comment for me, you can email me at Suzanne at the Suzanne Banker Show.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great week.